welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with David Woods. He's a professor in integrated systems engineering. And he's also, am I right in saying you developed this idea of graceful extensibility? Yes. And uh, a friend of, a mutual friend of ours who's an illustrator, Sue Borchard, put me onto this idea. And, you know, I, I loved it in the context of complexity thinking, which has obviously been uh, a major theme on this, pe- on this podcast. So, David, welcome to the show. <laughs> well, thank you. It's, it's great to be here with you. And uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to explain some things that I think uh, everyone is uh, experiencing. This isn't just a specialty thing uh, that uh, certain uh, sectors of industry um, or uh, places where safety and complexity are um, uh, critical to uh, keeping us all safe and things we do. It's something that we're all experiencing in the pandemic. Uh, we had a, a cyber event, uh, a, a failure of uh, uh, services last week. Uh, that affected many different uh, uh, operations around the world. Uh, couldn't read the New York Times for a while. Uh, a, a variety of things were were impaired, including cloud services that we all depend on, like on our our ability to interact today across the Atlantic. Uh, so more and more things are happening uh, because of the complexities of the world, and in some ways, um, the whole thing starts with a kind of biological stance. And, uh, and that we are part of the biological world. And we have, yeah. some, we bring some unique capabilities and some unique ways to mess it up, but we're part of the biological world. And in that biological world, uh, these kinds of changes, uh, these kinds of, uh, twists and turns and surprises and even shocks, uh, are normal over the course of a species of a lifespan of an individual over the life of a species. These are things, and we can illustrate these at you know phys- different physiological levels, different aspects of biology. And of course, we can do it in terms of people and our brain and how our brain works. We can do it as how we interact as a system of multiple people and all the tools we use, the visualizations, the computers, the automation, the things we put together as an intelligent species, right? Right. The intelligence uh, we bring to bear is uh, is not in the tools. Right, right. But it's our ability to create and wield these tools, deploy these tools intelligently. That's that's the true sign of why people bring uh, a, a special capability to the, this universe. So it's not the intelligence in the machine; it's our intelligence and in how yeah. we create, use that machine. Right. Um, and so these are all the different levels at which we see uh, and start to understand processes of how people adapt. Hopefully before a shock event happens or a big surprise happens, which of course is uh, befuddles everyone. If it's a surprise and especially if it's a shocking surprise, how in the world can we prepare for it? And of course, when we started pushing the idea of uh, resilience engineering 20 years ago, uh, that was the slogan. People said, what is this? Uh, and we said, Oh, it's. Uh, how to be prepared to be surprised, how to be prepared to be surprised. And people went, oh, okay, cool. And then they went, what? Uh, but if it's a surprise, what do you mean be prepared? Um, and of course, we see that in the um, after a shock, right? People rationalize, I don't need to change because that was so rare. We couldn't have mm-hmm. really prepared. There's, it was one in 500 years. 
It was, and um, and so, and also, we don't need to do much different now. Yes, we have to recover from the consequences of the shock uh, and put things back together, and we want to retreat and resume what we used to do. Right, feeling we all yeah. have in the pandemic too, right? And so we're we're we want to go backwards. Uh, and not see this as having a completely different message for us. Um, so we, um, uh, the way we talk about these things as, as surprises is they're not surprises about the frequency of the event. They're actually a surprise about our model of how the world works. It's a surprise about us and our relationship to the world around us, to other players, other organizations. Uh, and it, it's basically a message. And the message is the world you thought you lived in is not the world you actually live in. You live in a different world. It has different properties. It works differently than you thought. And now what are you going to do? Now, um, in many ways, this idea goes back. Um, and uh, one of the ways I first laid it out almost 40 years ago uh, was based on uh, an Israeli uh, intelligence officer who was part of the surprise where the Egyptians surprised the Israelis in the Yom Kippur War. And right. he wrote about that and reflected on that. And, uh, and surprisingly, he used a story about an early American lexicographer. No, okay. who wrote dictionaries, the colonial dictionaries, not the Oxford dictionaries, but the colonial ones, right? And, uh, <laughs> real and, talk. <laughs> and so no, so in this story, Noah goes off to do his lexicography and wherever his office was set up. And he's, you know, he works on words and precision. So he's an organized man. He has a schedule and he sticks to his schedule. Uh, and then one day he breaks his schedule and he comes home early only to discover his wife in the arms of one of the workmen at the place. And he, and the wife turns to him and says, Noah, You've surprised me. And Noah looks at his wife and goes, but honey, you have shocked me. And <laughs> the difference between Noah's wife, who went, who had what's, a, you know, kind of a, a situational surprise, a, a detail, right? A fine tuning. Uh, everything's okay. I just didn't understand he might shift his schedule a little. And if I just, kept a little better track of when these might changes might occur. Everything would be fine with what I want to do. She doesn't have to revise her view of the world and how things are going. She just needs to tune up her early warning system. But Noah, on the other hand, has had a shock. And that shock is about his model of the world, his relationship to his wife, his relationship to what else is going on. And that forces you to rethink where you stand. That gives you the opportunity to, have, to reconceptualize, to reframe, to rethink, to renew potentially um, and move forward. Um, now, you can think about that difference right, in the way we're all dealing with the pandemic yeah. in the forms of shock that we've gone through as comfortable notions about how the world works around us and our relationship have been uh, uh, uh we, we start to realize those really aren't the way the world works. We, we uncover and we have to confront that. And so what we see is processes we've talked about for a long time of uh, this tension between discounting and rationalizing to retreat. I just need to make some small changes. And of course, even better, 
uh, if we can blame someone, if we can blame a human or a human role or whatever, then that's even better because then we really don't have to do much. We just get that person out of the way. We give them some remedial training. Uh, we automate some more and we don't have to deal with the lesson. We don't or as I to, say a lot is my work as a, as a, as a change consultant is we'll just, we'll, we'll just change the org chart a bit, right? It's just a bit of restructuring is required here, right? And, um, uh, and so we see this retreat, a uh, retrenchment process go on and it's related to discounting signals and, um, uh, rationalizing away the opportunities and necessities for change. Um, cause remember, when I often get called in, I get called in after a shock event has happened, some, usually with some bad consequences or nearly some very uh, potentially bad uh, uh, consequences. Uh, one of our favorite ones is we almost drowned an astronaut on a spacewalk uh, five or six years ago. And, um, uh, and so that's kind of perfect. We, it was scary enough to think about that. It was actually asphyxiation because water in the helmet at zero gravity can block the airways. Well, thing, is, just, just talk us through that. How did you nearly kill an astronaut, David? <laughs> well, the, the issue was, well, this is what we're about to get to is the process of discount. So we just started talking about the after the shock. Now let's yeah. switch our frame to before the shock. So think about space station. Is anything designed to be perfectly matched to zero gravity, right? This is a pastiche. This is kind of, a kludge of, uh, to some degree of, of systems. It's an international, it's shared. Um, it is limited resources, right? There's limited space, there's limited time, there's limited materials to work with. Uh, the schedule is packed. Um, everything has productivity, the science, um, basic maintenance, but all of those also relate to safety, the integrity, the viability of the space station. And the safety to the personnel there. And they're all intermingled together. They're not separate. Well, safety's over here and science is over here and this other thing is over here. No, they're all intertwined together. Um, so you have finite resources and change keeps happening. You rotate people, the equipment. Um, and so, uh, you're under pressure, especially on a spacewalk. It's dangerous. Can't be out there too long. Uh, you've got to get some of these tasks done. They're important to productivity. You have to get the maintenance stuff done. In the long run, if you don't do that, that creates risk. In the short run, it's dangerous. And so um, you want to get the job done. So they practice getting the job done. They're going to get all the, all the tasks done. So on one spacewalk, they find the astronaut reporting water in the helmet. Wait a minute. There's not supposed to be water in the helmet. Where's the water coming from? Well, they have a drink bag so they can get some uh, liquids in them while they're on these extended spacewalks. Uh, uh, and, oh, well, the drink bag must be leaking. Seems simple, seems obvious. Oh, that's what it is. We don't need to worry about it anymore. They get everything done, whatever. They look at the, oh, we'll switch the drink bag. We're done. We don't have to do anything. Now, this isn't the way NASA used to do things. Sorry. Right. You don't take an anomaly and treat it as a mere discrepancy and l let it aside. Right. NASA was famous for digging into anomalies until they really understood where they came from. And what do you see here? Production pressure, finite resources, got to get more done. 
we're the gun, we're the can do people. We're going to get it all done. So the next spacewalk, does anyone review the procedures for deciding should we stop a spacewalk? Is this, how are the dangers of water intrusions into the helmet? Like asphyxiation. Mm, yeah. Uh, but it's also going to break the communication. So you can't talk to the person anymore. Uh, and so notice these things pile one upon the other, all from this common mode effect of, <coughs> of the water in the helmet. And now did they rehearse? How do you terminate a spacewalk? Because stopping one in the middle has all kinds of implications. Do you, do you do it quickly? Uh, well, what about the work you were doing? Do you wait till you reach a closure point? Um, how do you come back? If you hurry too much, you create new risks. Well, you know, there's, it's a very tangled set of interactions. Did they rehearse? Did they think through it? Did they check the procedures? No, they were, it was just a drink back. Discounted. So two weeks later, they do another one. Water intrusion again. A little more, right? And they spent about 40 minutes going around trying to figure out what does this do to it? Um, is it the drink bag again? Is it whatever? And they finally had to decide to terminate the spacewalk. Uh, and then how do you get them back? Well, of course, you lose communications in the process. And they just barely get them back into the repressurization chamber. And then there were some other new risks in repressurizing with all this excess, uh, excess water coming out of the helmet when they get the helmet off. And how do you deal with that? That create, that triggered unknown risks that people had never thought about. Um, and, uh, uh, and it turned out they had come very close at several points. He was, his breathing was impaired. And, and by the way, the astronaut involved never wanted to stop. I can keep going. I can get the job done. Mm. <coughs> That's what we do as astronauts. So it wasn't because they were cavalier in some sense. Uh, in fact, they were working really hard to get things done under difficult circumstances. But in the aftermath, what happened? We, everybody realized that this was a problem in how do you, uh, deal with surprise? How do you, uh, it was a, uh, the shock wasn't so much about the specific spacesuit failure, which was had some novel sub-subsystem issues, but the spacesuit wasn't designed for this kind of use. It wasn't designed for this continuous use. It wasn't designed for this kind of environment this long. It's supposed to be refurbished more often. So it's been adapted already to work in a new environment, a new context, new relationships. Again, we make it work. Um, but what happened is people missed and discounted the signals of trouble ahead. Because if you reviewed it, and this is where we kicked off and uh, some, uh, we involved a little bit and some colleagues were involved in helping NASA rethink what this case meant. Like NOAA, having to rethink their relationship, rethink their model of what was going on. How did people discount the signals and were unprepared, right, for a novel, uh, you know, a novel, but not so novel as that. And uh, so what did they miss? They missed the fact that all the procedures are terrible for terminating a spacewalk. They, they missed the fact that when they practice spacewalks, they practice them to maximize productivity, proficiency and productivity. What are the skills you need to get all the tasks done? And they practice getting all the tasks done, no matter what happens. They never practice making decisions that something is dangerous and they need to stop before it, something terrible happens. They need to do something different to mitigate or terminate the, the rising threat of 
major trouble. Um, there, they discovered that there were some issues with repressurization if you had things like excess water uh, uh, and, uh, and how you clean it up that created new risks that no one had, had thought through. So what they realized was that there was a, you know, we talk about this as an envelope, a boundary. This is the way the system works. And it's a messy system. It's not a perfect system. It's not perfectly designed for this situation. And even, uh, even if it was, it wouldn't be for very long because the world keeps changing and other stakeholders will ask you to do more, do it faster, do it in more complex ways. They'll stretch the system. And so you have to stretch there. And that's the extensibility, the graceful. So the spacesuit case, uh, the spacewalk case, excuse me, was, um, a great example of where in some ways people were stretching the system. All right. And then we see the weakness in this. And then we see how they tried to stretch it. And then we see how the organization responded to learn. Right. And, uh, and all of this is this idea of you have to be extensible at the boundaries, extensible at the extend performance, stretch performance at the boundaries. And so you have to understand what's going on there and that the boundaries, there really are boundaries. Uh, they're not where you think they are. And even if you knew where they are, they won't stay there very long. They keep moving around. Um, uh, and they're, um, and the world is going to throw surprises at you. Uh, events are going to occur regularly. And the irony here is part of the reason you don't see the boundaries and you don't see the challenges is because people handle them. They just right. handle them. That's what the astronauts do. They were proud of how good they were at getting all the stuff done in a spacewalk, despite the fact trouble happens on spacewalks all the time. Right? It's not rare. My colleague looked up the number of times there were, there were small problems to bigger problems on spacewalks. It happens very often. But what was going on was people were adapting to stretch the system. And then new things came along indicating new kinds of trouble. And Ironically, the contrast between what was going on and uh, mission control uh, relative to that highlighted studies we've done of mission control about why it shows high graceful extensibility, why it's prepared to be surprised, what they practiced in the old days, right? So they practiced lots of anomalies, lots of off, off nominal situations, not because they were predicting that was going to happen. We're going to have this one in 500 year event or this. We're going to practice one in 100 year events today because that's what's going to happen next. And the answer is no, that's not what they I mean, it would have been nice if they had an event that matched one of the ones they practiced. That would be great. And it happens sometimes. Mm. Right. But that's not why they do it or not why they did do it when we studied it. Right. They do it because they're practicing the skills to analyze the situation, to synthesize it, to coordinate, to gather more information, to know when to make a key decision. When can you delay and get more information? When do you have to be decisive? Right? They were practicing handling an event that they didn't prepare for. They were, they were practicing the preparation to handle a surprise, not to do this surprise or that surprise. Right. And that's graceful extensibility. Right. This ability where you are to extend performance at the boundaries. And so what we end up with compared to modern management, modern management wants to just keep staying efficient, put more production, productive, productive. And we can measure that. Great, great, great. And what this comes back and says in parallel, 
graceful extensibility as a form of resilience is a parallel requirement. You have to have this capability just as much as you have the capability to be highly efficient, uh, very good at what frequently occurs. So these are two things that operate in parallel. The problem is, right, the, the production pressure, right, makes all the things you do to be resilient look like wasted energy, wasted money, wasted money. <laughs> yeah. So we can cut it because we, we're, we're not, we're not thinking about shocks. We're not, we're not tracking all the surprise. And if we do see the surprises, remember that rationalization. It's just mm. due to, uh, some fine tuning. It would just tune up that early warning, a little more remedial training, a new procedure over here, a new automation system over there. There's nothing big to do here. Um, and so you discount the need to invest in this. You cut it. You undermine it. Okay. Uh, yeah. And of course, one of the reasons you don't see it is actually a law it's called the fluency law. Well-adapted activity hides the difficulties handled and the dilemmas resolved. You miss the dilemmas. You miss the difficulties. Why? Because something or someone, right? does a good job of adapting to handle that difficulty or to resolve that dilemma. Who does that? Some people in some roles, right? <laughs> we are systems today work because we rely on and miss, right, people as an ad hoc source of graceful extensibility. Why? Because we're part of the biology world. The biology world has to have this. And we can show you with cells, your heart, all different kinds of layers. The virus. Right. The virus is a great example. The virus is designed to exhibit future adaptive capacity. Right? Yeah. Because the virus would have lost to immune systems long ago. It has to be able to invent new ways of infecting, new ways of promulgating itself by invading and taking over cells. The immune system is trying to recognize and respond. The immune system does a pretty good job if you help it recognize and Sometimes we have to tune up its response. Um, in fact, right now we have a problem where we have some diseases where the immune system does too much. Right? Yeah. There's some autoimmune diseases, right? Uh, so that indicates these trade-offs. There's no perfect solution to all this in the biological world because these trade-offs uh, and uh, that, that go on and the finite resources apply to everything. Your ability to understand perfectly isn't, isn't ever going to be there. It's inherently messy, right? And we cope with this messiness. We outmaneuver this messiness by being poised to adapt. Right. And that's where we build up graceful extensibility. And that means you, as an organization, you have to look through the fluency wall. You have to break through that screen and go, how are they adapting? And this is one of the big things we've been pushing for the last 10 plus 15 years is, very simple thing to do as an or working organization is look at what makes you successful by looking at the details of how the system is messy and what kind of people and what kind of role are adapting and what kind of way to make it work. Because that's going on all the time. And if you understand that, right, you're not waiting to come home early from work and find your wife in the arms of another man. You're you're going, wait a minute, there's some issues about our relationship, and I'm lost too often in defining obscure English words for backwoods colonials. <laughs> and we've got to we've got to think about a little bigger picture, a more holistic view of my life and the relationships between people in my life, right? Using but, our, but, our but just to catch 
but but if people are looking for what's you're saying it's look for, look what's working and what people are doing to have the, people work but are you also looking to understand the soft spots i mean is that is that part of the challenge yeah so it's the relationship and this is, again is fundamental in biology back to the beginnings of evolution uh back dates to the, very explicitly to the 1930s uh, which is it's always the relationship between the challenge and the response, right? So what kinds of challenges generate what kinds of response? In that interaction, that's what you measure. You don't look at, well, how efficient is this? Or you don't look at the frequency of this. It's how those two interact, right? And how those go back and forth. And, and in biology, you can call that fitness. And control theory is the requisite variety. These are old terms people yeah. come up with. I actually well, what we've learned in biology, especially in the last 20 years and uh, in, in general, as well as in cognitive and human systems, uh, is that um, this is all getting that match is all about is a immediately take this way. This match, I have the right to capability to deal with the challenges and the and the frequency, what's common, what's typical. If I have a good match, right? We think we have an answer. But instead, that map, that connection is a question that has to be re-asked and re-answered. And this, uh, and so it's always going forward. It's always thinking ahead. It's always looking to the future. How do I have the, how do I, be, how am I poised to adapt in the future? How can I, what's my capability to act when the world changes? When what was good and worked well, right? is no longer going to produce the same results because the world has changed, because our relationships have changed, because our technology has changed, right? And of course, we're living in an era where change dominates. It's not always fast-paced, but it's always, you know, right? We're moving around and we all feel this higher tempo, right? We can see the tempo around us and we certainly see that tempo changing in a way that's hard to predict coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and so what do we know? We know we can't know everything about how it will develop. So we have to be prepared. And that preparation is how do you not discount, but anticipate. You recognize the early signs in that NASA example, right? The early signs were strong. This is not supposed to happen. And they're going, oh, wait a minute. It's just a little bit of water. It's just a drink bag. It's okay. No, it's not okay. <laughs> Water in the helmet is not remotely okay. And so you see the discounting process. And ironically, we use this NASA example because they have been and think of themselves as really good at not doing what they just did. That was their shock. Oh, how could we not, right, be ahead and anticipate that as a potential risk? Why are we not doing something? Well, now, we have to be kind to them too, because remember, it's space station and finite resources. You can't take the spacesuit and send it back to Earth immediately for analysis. You don't have the kit, all the equipment that let's take all those systems apart and see where this water could be coming from. It turned out at a sub subsystem level, it was a novel mechanical failure. So everyone could say, oh, there's a root cause, we're done, we fix that, it's all over. But NASA showed they were a effective organization in terms of graceful extensibility at the organizational level because they didn't stop there. They went, oh, wait a minute. 
Now notice that way, that stopping points, that's the rationalization. That's Noah's wife. And the name for that is called the component substitution fallacy. The component substitution fallacy. Why? Because, look, in finite resources and chains, you have to make trade-off decisions when you develop anything. Guess what? Every subsystem and component has some weaknesses. It's not perfect. You can't afford it to be perfect. Right. So when you have a system problem, a complex system problem, will it, will it reveal component weaknesses? Of course. Does, is it good to fix component weaknesses? Of course. Does component weaknesses explain a complex system breakdown? Not in the least. It has no explanatory power whatsoever. It doesn't tell you anything about how this complex system works, why it works at all, what the real threats, how those threats are controlled. If you're thinking down here when you've got something up here. So NASA pursued up here. And, and that, and what's interesting is the lessons from that apply to much more than a spacewalk. Yes, they had to fix the procedures. <laughs> it, it applies much more than the spacesuit. Yes, they're still waiting for a well-designed spacesuit with zero gravity and it's coming, you know, maybe in a year to two years. Um, how many accidents have we seen where but we had a program underway to replace this and redesign it. Uh, it was behind schedule, but we were, you know, we were going to get there and then this wouldn't have mattered. Uh, again, right? What do we see? Do we see the tempo and drag and resource limits of real world systems? And how do you, how do you understand? How do you, um, what do you draw on to adapt when challenges hit you that don't, uh, fit? Your pre-planned contingencies, your pre-planned way of working. So you have yeah. to be able to adjust how you do things. Yeah, um, I'm just so I'm just reflecting on 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 the on the, the the component substitution fallacy. So that's presumably that so that's the idea that this if I just change this one thing, right? I'll substitute this component, all will be well. So okay, so now I'm thinking, okay, so it's not just about the component; it's about the the, the complexity of the system as the as a whole. But how does that then not become overwhelming? And, and, you know, where do you then start, right? Once you've said it's not about reducing it down to a component. It's not about just the fact, you know, I don't put the, 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 the cap on the toothpaste if I'm Noah. It's like, how do I, if I, if I, you know, how do I not become overwhelmed if I'm thinking of it in the round? Well, you're exactly right. That's the question. And that's, that very quickly leads to the, well, we can't do anything. We can only do this small thing. We can only do one thing. And um, it is a complete misunderstanding of how the world works. Um, you have to be able to do both. Yes, you need to be effective at being efficient and productive for things that uh, normally happen. The frequency, you need to get better and better. Uh, and you have to have, and the biological world does both, right? And you have to have the capability to work at the boundaries to meet challenges and change because you know the world will continue to change. Ironically, one of the biggest drivers of that change, that when you think you've got your envelope, you're competent, when you're competent and you've got it nailed, this is how it works competently, effectively, productively. Uh, what's one of the biggest drivers of surprises that will challenge that competence? The fact that you're succeeding because your success is a resource for other stakeholders, other people who are adaptive agents in the biological world who will say, that's great, you can do this, I'm gonna use that, or I'm gonna take those resources and, and give them to our investors. 
all of a sudden you have less food. Yes, thank you very much for being successful. Now do it for 10% less. Now do it for 20% less. Now do it for 30% less. Right? Um, the, um, uh, so let me give you a simple example of this in biology. Your brain. Right? You can just think of your brain. You, the brain, right, works at a certain time and space, spatial scale. And in that scale, it is very, very good at two things. Exactly the two things we've talked about, right? The brain is learning all the time about what do you frequently experience? And, and, and understanding that that happens in different kinds of classes of situations. And over here, it's best to do this. Over here, it's best to do this. And is constantly learning from its experience. So it's constantly getting better. Great. But the world can shift on it. So what is, what does the brain do? It also in parallel has to be extremely sensitive to novelty. What's different? What's anomalous? What's unexpected? Unexpected is it doesn't fit my model of how this is how the world works. This is how I get good at it. This is what you do in this situation to be smooth and fast and whatever, right? And so uh, all of a sudden, again, it's the shock is the novelty is a shock. The unexpected is a shock because it doesn't fit your model of the world. It doesn't fit what you've been doing that's working so well. And so the brain is set up to recognize the unexpected really, really fast doesn't have a whole bunch of processing through layers of the brain and then eventually goes, this is different. No, right off the bat, it goes, this is different. What are we going to do about it? What is this? Oh, is it really not that different? Or is it really different? And we got to do something. Is it something we got to do something different fast? I mean, we can think of the, uh, uh, the tragedy, the near tragedy on the football pitch is, uh, on Monday. Right. Uh, or Saturday, uh, uh, with Christian and, uh, Erickson, uh, yeah. people had to recognize immediately, even though we have provision stuff for medical emergencies, this was something that had to have a decisive, immediate response. And, uh, the, um, uh, the player who quickly is recognizing the immediate threat, right? And clearing the air or protecting the airway. Uh, while the medical staff is running over the ability to have, um, the, to, uh, shock the heart back into rhythm, uh, et cetera. We were able to do this, but each of those took, um, a, a thoughtful, uh, but quick and decisive response to the challenge that was arising at the boundary. So the brain is set up to recognize this kind of novelty and when it can respond quickly, when we need to be suspicious and investigate, skeptical and go, hmm, what else is going on here? How many times have you had something untoward happen? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then you kind of go, okay, uh, I don't have time. I, I'm busy and I've got to do this. And uh, this isn't a work day. I got to relax a little bit, whatever. And then you find and you let it go. And then later on, you go, oh, wait a minute. It was a hint, a, a, a clear signal that said something was different and you needed to follow it up. And you don't do it. And then later on, you go, oh, wait a minute. Right. What do we have? We had the internet uh, go out because we had a storm go through and the power went out. And so the internet went out and didn't come back. And we're like, oh, what's going on? Well, it's late. Well, it's almost time for bed. I and mean, we'll go up and read. We don't need to watch anything on the, or be on the internet or watch anything on inter streaming services. Uh, we'll go to bed and read. Wake up in the morning. I go to put something in the freezer. The freezer's been off all night because the power is out down in one section of the basement. Why didn't I follow up the anomaly that the, uh, mm -hmm. right? So we, we fall, it's a natural to fall into this trap. 
but we're also good with practice uh, and things at the other side of recognizing and going, this is different. This requires a response. What do I do? How do we move this forward constructively, given the challenge or threat that's emerged? Yeah, um, but but what also comes to me is that but that requires resource allocation, right? There's, so there's part of our brain that's putting you know energy into scanning and monitoring the environment continually, whilst over time habitualizing the things that we know frequently you know give us rewards, right? So we we we, we and then over time we take some some resource away from that, presumably because it we, we, it becomes habit forming and we don't have to put so much mental energy into completing the routine but we keep this other part of the brain active. And, I, and as, as you talk about that, I, I recognize in management situations, we're really good at the systemizing and the routinizing and the habitualizing things that bring us revenue, let's say, for a commercial organization, less good at like protecting and maintaining a resource to continually scan for, for novelty. So you just described one of the key things we pointed out at the beginning of starting resilience engineering is that this, um, uh, that first, that these things take resources, takes energy, takes capability. Take those cap- have those capabilities to be poised to adapt has to, uh, requires preparatory work. So the first thing is, uh, adaptive capacity is future oriented, right? In other words, if you have to generate it when you're in the challenge, when you're in the crisis, it's too late. It's hard to do it well when you have to generate the capability in the middle of the crisis, right? You need to have a preparatory investment that allows you to be able to respond. So think about the health organizations in the pandemic. Um, right? Hospital systems, health departments, right, are up here and they are, you know, tend to be working on, uh, things from efficiency, financial point of view. They tend to be working on, uh, other kinds of issues, not a global pandemic and stuff. Right. We have our clinical staff. They're more used to high tempo and not ICU or emergency room. Right. Who's coming in? Who's sick? How many do we have? How do we reallocate our, 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 our space, our human resources, our expertise when we get a spike in patient or we get uh, a bunch of people with critical issues coming at the same time because of, you know, it's a, a common mode event like Fourth of July in the U.S. Oh, more people in the emergency room. Uh, or New Year's Eve, right? I'm sure you can think of some bank holidays mm, in, mm, in mm. England where this might happen, right? And so you're trying to deal with these different surges and levels of things. Um, uh, and so you have to, um, it, it takes energy. You have to invest and that eventually becomes some kinds of uh, financial aspect of things. Um, the uh, the interesting thing when we've studied mass casualty, really big mass casualty events. So this is beyond surge capacity in an emergency room. Uh, what do they draw on has to be there in advance. So think of it. So we had a case of almost 500 people burned in one event. Uh, young, luckily, in some sense, luckily, young people in the sense they didn't have other uh, comorbidities, we'd say. So they were relatively healthy people for the most part. Uh, when this uh, tragedy occurred. Uh, also, the fire did not create a lot of smoke. So there was some inhalational, but it was mostly surface burns they had to deal with. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been, even though it was almost 500 people. But that starts to overload the hospital systems. Uh, so how do hospital systems respond? 
well, it turns out, as one reviewer said of our papers on this, well, this thing boils down to that they were, they did a lot of ad hoc adapting to make it work. <laughs> the answer is yes. And then the second question, and then, then the, the response to the reviewer is, maybe that's not the best way for us to design emergency medical systems, <laughs> right? That simply count that medical people have a sense of responsibility to the patient. They have a can-do attitude like our astronaut. You, you overload me. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of who's here. And I'm going to do the best I can. If that means I've got to uh, put people in the, uh, and create a new treatment area from some underused part of the hospital, then that's what we're going to do. If I have to divide the staff up, if I have to take people who aren't good, uh, because burns is a specialty. So, okay, you're a cardiac, you're a cardiac specialist. You're a burn specialist now. Who's the burn specialist? This person. You stand back and tell all these other people what they're supposed to do to treat these burns and keep checking. Right. Because they're not burn specialists and you are. So you're now in charge of everybody. And they develop this on the fly. Um, well, you know, and you again, just like the procedures on the, on the spacewalk, the, how do you terminate a spacewalk safely? We're fiction, incomplete, not, not focusing any of the important things, not help at all. Right. You look at the procedures for dealing with mass casualty events. Are they any help? No. Uh, they're, they're usually too broad in general. That's perfectly reasonable stuff, but it's not actually going to help people in the throes of this. The other problem here is called the novelty inequality. The novelty inequality. All right. So, right. When you're in the middle of one of these things, you're in this, you know, surge of patients in an emergency room, uh, or this event on the space station. Uh, when you're in the middle of it, the potential novelty of the situation is much, much greater than the determined novelty after the fact. After the fact, when you can carefully analyze this, you're going to figure out what actually was different, yeah. right? What didn't really fit the procedure? What really didn't fit standard practice? And of course, a lot of times they'll come back and go, oh, you know, if you would just follow this step in the procedure, and if you'd just done this, and yes, it's not the typical practice, but it's still within the doctrine we apply for these things. Everything would have been fine. It would have been simple. It would have been easy, right? Um, I actually had a case we investigated in a nuclear power event, uh, and that was the uh, first diagnosis was, well, there was a step in the procedure, and they didn't follow it. But this was a test reactor that was testing how nuclear reactors behave when they are breaking so they right. deliberately break it in a safe way. Uh, and the people who had designed the test and written the procedure were in the control room. And the, the reason that step was in the procedure had nothing to do with what they were seeing. In fact, it was relevant. They put it in for a different part of the test that it was already passed. It had nothing to do. The, the reason it was in the procedure had nothing to do with what they were dealing with. Uh, so this was a complete after the fact way to minimize anything about what you had to change instead of recognizing that this was actually a surprising event that had novel, novel aspects to it as they confronted it when they were in the middle of it. What is this? This is not what we thought about happening when we designed all the contingencies in the test. Remember, this is a test of a reactor where you deliberately are getting information about how it behaves at temperatures it's never supposed to be at. Right. And so you do tons of contingency planning and they're going, 
we didn't think about this contingency. This doesn't look like anything we thought about. How do we deal with it? Right. And so the issue was they took a partial response and then the full safety response. And they were criticized for not doing a full safety response immediately. And, uh, and the answer was they had to deal with novelty and uncertainty. And that took some extra, a, 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 an extra 10 or 15 seconds. That's what they yeah. were. And, and this was a big criticism of big trouble. Mm. Mm. Right. And it was no, this was, a, this is a natural way to deal with the uncertainty and novelty of the situation. They kept after the fact, they're thinking of it as, Oh, there's just this little bit different. Here's the key response. Now we know exactly what, to do. Oh, you didn't do that one. Oh, you're terrible. Are you terrible? Oh, no, we don't have to think about anything again. Right. So the novelty inequality, um, is, is this thing where it's why we can rationalize after the fact and only make small changes. Because it look, it doesn't look as novel to us afterwards as it did to the people during. Now, the other side of this is when you're in the middle of it, it's hard to see all the potential novelty. What was NASA good at in mission control was keeping track of all of the potential novelty. So the classic example is Apollo 13. Um, so they're trying to get back. They're trying to replan, uh, the, uh, landing module as a lifeboat to get back. And they have limited, uh, supplies to keep them, uh, keep the astronauts alive on the way back. They have limited control of the vehicle. So it reenters properly and they've lost all their backup capabilities. And you can't navigate this without, um, uh, some subsystems, some gyroscopic subsystems. And there's a failure mold mode called gimbal lock. And under normal circumstances, there's some remedies, there's some backup, there's some ways. It's not a single failure point. But now it's a single failure point. If, if you lose this, you're, you're done. You can't control the craft. You won't hit the atmosphere right. The astronaut, the astronauts are lost. And so they, it's not in the movie because nothing happened. Right. But they didn't know that. Not during Apollo 13. So they had a team off. Uh, they were able to break up these different teams and put them together to deal with different issues. One, the one that's, uh, about scrubbing CO2. That was in the movie, right? But they didn't do the one which was keep the gyroscopes working, right? No, act early, that recognize anything. There's not much we can do, but we lose this, we're done. So yeah. do the best you can to prevent it. That's all we got. Well, it turned out they didn't need to do much. The, the system kept working. They didn't uh, didn't have that crisis. Uh, but but it was good that they recognized that. Now, afterwards, right. you said that was unnecessary. That was a waste of resources. That was just right. irrelevant. As opposed to, no, that was actually critical management of an uncertain novel situation. Right. Right. So, but even, but even that, in a sense, the fact that it wasn't in the movie is instructive because it kind of tells us, you know, the uneventful is uninteresting, right? Like you can imagine like in an organizational setting, I don't know, let's say we, you know, we have a department or we have a team and their job is to, is to is to monitor certain systems or, or as you say like be be, be uh, scanning for novelty and you know and it kind of runs along for years and nothing happens right and and you could very easily see the mindset that says oh well what you know what are these guys really doing you know let 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 let's stop doing this um but this is this is actually one of the findings which is actually um there's stuff going on all the time um, and that, that's, um, uh, one of the uh, pairs of questions I asked, for example, with the pandemic, 
right? Weren't things quiet before? Right? And the answer is no, things aren't quiet, right? Uh, around the pandemic, we had, uh, we had almost a state in, I mean, only exaggerate slightly, we had a whole state in Australia almost burned down a couple of fire seasons ago, right? Before, it's hard to remember that given the pandemics. In the mm. um, we had Zeta. Uh, or Zika, excuse me, Zika, uh, as a threat, uh, uh, as a new disease outbreak, uh, that was particularly tragic because it affected small children. Um, the, um, uh, you know, the world isn't, even at a society scale, the world isn't quiet. Uh, events are happening. We can go back to the Icelandic volcano that shut down air traffic across, uh, most of Europe. I was trapped in Europe in that, by the way. Um, and, uh, uh, no, uh, you know, the, the re uh, there's events happening all the time. This gets us back to that fluency law, uh, you know, we, or it's happening over there. It doesn't apply to us. It only, it, this is one of the rationalization, right? I'm not surprised it happened to them. They're not as careful as we are. <laughs> and, and you don't realize that's a finding. We, we hear that all the time. When we go in and look afterwards. So one, one case we really did, it's in the first resilience engineering book. Uh, we went in and it's a very good organization, very effective organization. And they had an event that was scary, uh, had economic loss and, um, uh, almost it could have, it could have killed some people at the plant. It's one of the most dangerous places we've ever been. Um, all kinds of hazards. And, um, uh, the, um, and so we went and, and looked at it and we talked to the people who, uh, worked other parts of the process, high tech process. And they went, Oh yeah, I'm not surprised something went wrong over there. They're not as careful as we are. The part we do of the, of the total process is better. And, and it happened at the back shift. So it was like, Oh yeah, yeah. We're not surprised it happened to those people. We're much more careful than they are. Um, they um they figured out the the key thing here was there had been an incident in another part of the world, another factory in another part of the world um, and they um i don't know I don't know if this story is going to go over too well into your audience i I may get in trouble over this, but it's really what happened um, and um so they 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 because they saw themselves as a very good safety organization. They tried to understand where this came from and they decided the key thing, the key component to, to make change, the key change to make was we needed to get our official reports on incidents from other plants faster. Uh, they need to be filed faster and disseminated, uh, alerted to all the different places so they can read and analyze it and see if it's relevant to them. My colleague and I were in the back of the room when this was on and there, and you could just see the, uh, the room was all, yes, this is great. We found something. We're making a change. Uh, you can, oh, there's the book. We can file it away. We'll wrap it in a nice ribbon. We've done a good job. We're going to file it away. We're done. We are done. We have reached closure. The ten, the feeling, the necessity for them as people to reach as a good organization who had had an almost terrible thing happen and bad enough financially, uh, that they had to have closure. And we had to stand up and say, no, that's not what went on. And they're looking at us like, who brought these people in? Um, in fact, your informal communication network worked perfectly well. Your people knew about that event in this other factory, in this other yeah. part of the world. 
And what did they do? They said, that doesn't apply to us. We're different. We're more careful than they are. They're Irish. <laughs> right. Right. Back in Ireland. You know, and you're like, wait a minute. I mean, I know the history. I mean, I know the history. So, you know, get some people mad. But you see this all the time in aviation. Oh, I'm not surprised it happened to them. They're not. They're not the U.S. or they're not Europe. <coughs> no. I, no, no, no. These things um, uh, with the Boeing three, uh, 737 MAX uh, and MCAS automation, they're missing all of the fundamental engineering problems that went on. But because it was easy to say, well, I'm not surprised it happened to that airline in that part of the world. No, 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 no. That's not the way, that's not how you understand complex systems. That's not how you create safety. That's, that's not how you move forward. Uh, and that's not how you get, you get ready before the shock to be poised to adapt, to have these preparatory skills and capabilities, because inevitably you're going to need to adapt. Yeah. And um, it comes back to me when you mentioned about the, the early days in NASA, this curiosity for the anomaly. Oh, that's interesting. They're a company in the same space as us, or they're an airline. That's anomalous. Like, why did that happen, right? I get, it, it feels like there's an absence of that uh, curiosity right. for novelty. And that curiosity has to go wider than just the specific event, right? So the real, the good follow-up to not the near miss on the walk, but on the narrowness of the understanding of the near miss that good event starts going, wait a minute, this has to do with training for uh, for spacewalks. It has to do with procedures for spacewalks. It has to do with how mission control works, how we uh, handle um, uh, discrepant evidence under production pressure. When, what are we going to sacrifice when? And how do we know? And how is the organization going to support me if I make a sacrifice decision, right? That I sacrifice this uh, science project or this maintenance task because of uncertainty. Uh, um, remember, the novelty thing means I'm uncertain. So I'll tell you another story. It's written up in the, the first resilience engineering book. Um, so this was uh, related to the patient safety movement. And I would get in, invited to give a talk uh, various places, uh, U.S. and around the world. Uh, this, uh, part of this happened in England. And we, um, uh, and what would happen is the opening speaker, who would be a much bigger name and might even be on cover of a magazine, uh, right, would come in and explain what, how to, how to get patient safety and how to build a safety culture. And they would use a NASA example. And the example would go something like this. Uh, there was a rocket launch. There was a, a plane on a mission or something, right? And, and there was a person who noticed, right? Some things weren't quite right. Uh, noticed that there could be trouble ahead and went, wait, stop. There's, there's some things, there's some indications we, we need to resolve. And sure enough, when you stop the rocket launch and you check, oh, everyone finds out that there, there really was a significant tangible risk of this going very early, very disastrously. Similarly, um, uh, the, the, the flight, you know, the voice recognizes something's going on. They, uh, they get the plane back on the ground. They start inspecting it. Sure enough, 
right? There was an insipid failure ready to happen. It could have been catastrophic, it looks like. And you can just see everybody in the room going, oh, yeah, I wish I was in an organization like that. I wish I could be a courageous voice like that. I wish my organization would appreciate a courageous voice like that. Uh, and so uh, that speaker leaves and goes because they're busy and important and whatever. And they have me speak after lunch um, because they're not sure what I'm going to say, but they know I'm going to wake people up after lunch. So I start off and go, wasn't that a great story? And everybody's like, little, little, uh, right, relax from lunch. Uh, it was a nice story. And uh, that was great to hear about that courageous voice. And they're like, yeah, it was a courageous voice. And I was like, and don't you wish you could be a courageous voice like that? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're starting to wake up a little bit. Uh, and you wish your organization would value courageous voices and reward courageous voices like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I went, well, that's a, that story is great. And in fact, quite accurate all up to the ending. The ending is wrong. And they're, now they're all awake. What do you mean the ending is wrong? That's the big name. Who are you? The ending was wrong. Yeah, the ending's wrong. Because when you stop the rocket launch and you look, the probability is you won't be able to determine definitively that there was going to be a catastrophe. When you get the airplane back on the ground and you check, the probability is that it's not going to be clear cut. There was going to be a major failure that threatened that flight, right? When you stop and check, it's, it's going to probably turn out that you didn't need to sacrifice productivity for safety. Now, what does your organization do? Now, what's that happens to that courageous voice? That's the test. When everyone says that's good that you stopped, when the, when the evidence doesn't signal clearly that it was a necessary sacrifice. Because if you only wait for clear-cut evidence that the sacrifice is necessary, guess what you're going to wait for? You're going to wait for the damn plane to crash. Because that's the mm. only really definitive evidence. And by the way, when the plane crashes, look at Boeing's rationalizations for why 346 dead people didn't matter. Right? They came up with every rationalization they could that this this really wasn't about the engineering of the airplane. Right. right? Even when it crashes twice. Yeah. That's how powerful those rationalizations. That's how powerful retreat. That's how powerful retrenchment is. Then in the face of two accidents, 346 dead people, they're still doing. Yeah. Right? That's not to pick on Boeing. Because they're not the only time this has happened. Not the only way this plays out. So got to move it in the other direction where you're sensitive to these early signals and that you have, and you have an organization that is willing to recognize is when do we make and when do we make the trade off? When do we make the sacrifice? When do we put the long term, right? Again, ahead of the short term. Occasionally we see long term, uh, ahead of short term. Uh, given uncertainty, given novelty, the Icelandic volcano was a particularly inefficient way to put the long term in, um, in, um, uh, ahead of the short term. Uh, we don't understand volcanic ash effects on the engines. They will shut down traffic, but they quickly discovered they had, they were not poised to adapt. They didn't have any of the preparatory investment at a, um, uh, continental scale, at a European scale 
to say, how do all these different organizations interact in order to make a timely, higher tempo decision about where do we get the information? What kind of information do we need? How widespread does the shutdown have to be? Um, uh, how do we get, how do we end up, how do we plan reactivating this, uh, the airspace, et cetera, given the disruption of, of stopping flights for multiple days? Uh, there was a ton of things that had to be worked out, both to understand the risk, plan what was safe given the risk, and resume operations as the risk receded, all of which was an enormous struggle. Everyone was floundering around. And some people will take the lesson, well, we should have just kept flying. People were like, no, <laughs> we didn't demonstrate good, graceful extensibility in the face of a surprising, shocking challenge. And of course, yeah. by the way, you know, was this the first time volcanic ash had gotten in the way of airplanes? No. It was just tended to be in places where we didn't have such high density air traffic. Uh, were there, right. were there industry, international industry groups trying to evaluate the effect of ash on engines? Yes. You know how slow they were moving? Really slow. Really slow. Yeah. Oh, it's not a priority. You know, it's just volcanoes. They only happen somewhere in the South Pacific or something or Indonesia. What does that have to do with us? We, that's, and, and so they made, it was on the list for a long time without much progress until boom. Now it hits you. And so you, but see then the I guess that of, isn't, but then that strikes me as being the challenge here, right? Is that you've, You've got all of these things that you could be sensing and developing you know, graceful extensibility for, for the panoply of possible occurrences. That seems like, okay, so you get over the overwhelm and you accept you've got to divert some of your resources to this future scanning and, you know, looking at novelty and developing your ability to, you know, extend gracefully at the boundaries, right? I get all that. But then it's like, okay, well, anything could occur at any one of our boundaries. So where do we focus the effort? So this is one of the shocks about how the this universe actually works. And of course, the, the simple way to say it is the finite resources and trade-offs apply to graceful extensibility the same as they apply to efficiency and productivity. Yep, you're right. Absolutely. And that's that what that means is, right? That graceful graceful extensibility, this investment in this is is constantly trying to say, where is my system have excess brittleness? Right. I mean, technically, what we say here is look, no system can be infinitely resilient. You can't have you, there's not once I hit this level of graceful extensibility, I'm done. Um, <laughs> sim similarly, I can't take brittleness of the system. In other words, a quick collapse, a rapid collapse in performance at the boundary. I can't make that zero. It's not not possible in this universe to make this zero or graceful extensibility complete. Right. And so this is where the poise to adapt, the poise to relearn. So this is why we all talk about these, I hate to say this, but meta skills, you know, skill, you know, not the base skills, but it's the skills on top of the skills, right? And those skills are about anticipation, synchronization. Think about the lack of synchronization and coordination across the different authorities involved in the response to the Iceland, the, the uh, uh, volcanic ash cloud over Europe, right? That went to, that wasn't well synchronized. It wasn't matching the tempo of the event. And so it was, it was safe, but slow, right? And extra costly. Um, uh, so you're, what this is about is the ability to anticipate, to pick up those early signals. So this is why those discounting things, like that story about, oh, this won't happen to me. We're more careful than they are. Uh, is so, is so, um, debilitating. 
it means that you will miss the signals. Now, remember one of the events that started resilience engineering uh, was the Columbia space shuttle accident. And I uh, was involved a little bit in helping the independent investigation board, just a little bit, but, um, uh, and got to talk to the U.S. Congress about safety at NASA and the aftermath and the new, the new system-wide, organization-wide changes NASA was making. But what's important is on this discount and why that example, we keep telling it, you know, uh, 18 years later, is um, think of what they were noticing. Right. So NASA was good at debris strikes. Right. Debris strikes was a big threat to the space shuttle, the orbiter. And they were very good at evaluating and improving the performance of the vehicle relative to that risk. But it was about debris strikes on orbit. Now, what do they start seeing? They start seeing debris strikes on launch. Right. Insulating material comes off the booster striking the orbiter. Different phase of flight. Calculate the energy. Simple high school physics, right? Uh, and you calculate the mass and the acceleration to get the force. And what do you find out? It's a hundred times more than the max they had analyzed for. Two orders of magnitude outside their envelope. Two orders of magnitude. A different phase of flight. And because of the mechanism by which the debris was generated and the configuration of the vehicle striking uh, some parts that were different uh, than you would tend to see on orbit. So there were three ways you were operating well outside your boundary. This isn't a weak signal. This isn't an ambiguous signal. This is very clear cut evidence that you are outside. You're, this is unexpected and outside the envelope where you understand, outside where you're caught. And you're supposed to react to that, right? And saying, okay, I don't know what's safe. I don't know how much risk. I don't know what's the best thing to do. We go and good engineering practice, analyze it, understand it. And then, but you're under production pressure. They, they were operating well behind schedule for supporting space station construction at that stage. Uh, cause at that stage, the U.S. was going to have one. Uh, and, um, uh, and so under production pressure, it was like, well, there's always problems. We can't let this hold up the schedule, right? And so uh, this doesn't really matter. And we've seen this before and we haven't, we haven't had, we didn't have definitive evidence because we haven't lost a vehicle yet, right? When did they change? When they had definitive evidence, they lost the vehicle and the lives with it. That was what took them to change. Yeah. We can't wait for that in the modern complex world. Right. These things have too many consequences. So this is the, um, this is the hard constraint. This is the fundamental rule. Right. So like you would talk about physics and hard laws. Well, you talk about, you know, famous equations from Einstein and stuff. Here's the one for the adaptive universe. Viability in the long run. Viability, right, requires extensibility. In the long run, surprises that challenge your competence and threaten a collapse of your system, threaten its viability, will occur. It's not a question of if. It's not a question of one in 500, one in 100, one in 1,000. It will occur. Yeah. 
And it feels like that's the truth to accept, but, 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 but that's the foundational, that's the axiom of this, right? Like, unless you've taken that on, you're not okay. going to make the moves following that. So viability requires extensibility. That extensibility is graceful in the sense that it has to move from your normal way of working, right? You can't go and say, oh, we're now calling the people who handle the uh, edge of envelope events, get them over here really quick. You have to have a smooth and timely way to bring them into the situation. Okay? And if you can bring them in, then you can, and then you can deal with these things. You're prepared to be surprised. You can handle things at the edges of the envelope. Um, and so this is a, this is as hard a constraint as you can have. Now there's a puzzle about this. And this is how it's different. Biology is different than physics. Right. There's nothing. And, and, especially in the cognitive human realm because we don't have the genetic transfer of information, right? That systems and organizations here, right? There is nothing that tells you you have to design your system right given the real rules, the real laws, the real hard constraints on the adaptive universe. You don't have to follow the rules. But you can't escape from the consequences of not following the rules. Mm -hmm. So a simple example is you can design a high center of gravity vehicle. Think of the American SUV, right? Now, it's not really a ra old Range Rover trying to go on safari across the uh, uh, Africa, off-road, self-sufficient for long periods of time, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Uh, uh, not but if you have a high center of gravity car and drive it on, you want to drive it fast on curvy roads, it's going to flip over some of the time. Now, there's nothing that's going to stop me from saying, stop you as a designer from doing that. High center of gravity car, curvy roads, production pressure to drive fast. But when it flips over, it has nothing to do with the driver. You design yeah. that into the system. Right. It operate in this context with this physical context with these kinds of pressures and expectations with this kind of vehicle. It flips over. In fact, the only surprise is it doesn't flip over more often. Why? Because the drivers are adapting to the fact that it might flip over. It's a high center of gravity car. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and if you've ever witnessed an SUV flip over on slippery terrain, because somebody, the human did not adjust. Because they didn't recognize how slippery it was or whatever, or who knows what other pressure they were operating under. And you watch them fly by you going, this is not good because I know the roads are doing this and it had been lightly raining and in a rural area and the road, yeah, it was like, this is, this is not good. And a mile later, I come across that car upside down on the side of the road. Right. So it's a very vivid example of, of how this plays out. The, um, for people. So the rule is, um, you know, there's these constraints about how this works. And the interesting thing and from our biological examples is biology has worked out a way to try to get to the best place in the trade space, but it's not a point. Right. And this is the talk I give next week. Right. I run through how it's all about the ability to adapt in the future and how biological systems continue to, while being productive in the short run, are also set up to be highly adaptive in the future. Even though they don't know what's going to happen in the future, they do know it will be different. 
And they do know there will be uncertainty. And they do know most of the time there will be early signals. And they do know they need to start responding early to those early signals in small steps so that they can continue to change course. And when the world looks like it's throwing obstacles this way, go this way and then go, oh, wait a minute, there's some other obstacles I need to go this way. So it's how to steer in a complex changing landscape where you can't see ahead perfectly. You can't see all the obstacles. And one obstacle may lead you, avoiding one obstacle may lead you into a much bigger mess of obstacles to deal with. But it's one more thing I got to say there is don't just think of it as obstacles. Think of it as opportunities too, right? Which is, oh, wait a minute. I got off the road and went down the hill into this nice safe valley. Oh, this is a beautiful place. This would be a nice place to stop and take a rest. There's a lovely park here. What it, what, we'll have a nice rest and vacation and we won't be in such a hurry to get to our what we thought was our destination because we found a lovely place to, to, to pause um, and smell the roses as the saying goes, right? Well, that's a really important point, actually. So this sort of sense making and being curious about novelty and keeping your sort of feelers open uh, it isn't just about detecting the disaster, right? You may, in that inquiry, detect, you know, very positive opportunities. Um, and actually, that plays into the next sort of reflection I was going to make here is that, yes, it's about diverting resources into this, this scanning, if you like, but it's also developing this ability and perhaps set of principles around, okay, when, as you said before, like, when do we make the decision? Is this signal important enough that we're going to sacrifice short term for the long time? And like having a a modus around that that you establish within, you know, I'm thinking organizations here in the context of an organization, it seems to me that's like a really important key here. Uh, and it's certainly what everyone is confronting now as uh, the pandemic is easing in part of the world, parts of the world, um, even though it's far from over globally. Uh, and uh, and there's plenty of potential blowback uh, that can happen to areas uh, that seem to be uh, able to come out a little bit. Um, but everyone is trying to think about what this means going forward. And so this question of uh, reconfiguration and renewal. How do we re-examine what's most important? How do we rebalance our way we, we make trade-offs? How do we see a bigger picture and, and configure things? Uh, yes, there's constraints on economic side, et cetera, but how do we reconfigure things in terms of a changing future? Uh, we know uh, that the comments in almost every everyday encounter with non-specialists is how we know things are going to change and we don't know how things are going to change. Right. The only the only you know, it was early in the pandemic. The only certainty is the uncertainty. When you talk to a good uh, ER doc, right, and not talk about the hard cases uh, and, and you go to and how often do you have a hard case? And they laugh and go every shift. Um, uh, uh, and you ask them about the hard cases and they, what are they? What's one of the first things they say almost all the time? The thing I knew for sure was I didn't know for sure. I couldn't know for sure. And I had to do yeah. something in order to create the ability to get the information, to be able to be, you know, uh, especially when, uh, because you may need to take a decisive intervention to thwart a physiological collapse. Uh, and so you'd better, if you have to move fast, you better be ready to move fast. Uh, and of course, that's one of the reasons why we studied the operating room and the ICU and the emergency room was because these were places where you had to make this thing of, I had to be ready to move fast if I needed to move fast, but most of the time I didn't have to move fast. Right. So, so if you just said, well, I don't have to move fast most of the time, I don't have to worry about it. Uh, when you did need to move fast, you were ready 
to make a commitment and a decision to do that. Um, um, I could tell you more. I mean, we have, <laughs> after doing this for 42 years, I have stories, you know? Okay. Let me tell you about the time. <laughs> no, no, no it, it, it feels like I'm certainly getting a, a rich picture of what this is about now. I mean, I, I hope that's also true for the, for the listeners. Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and you've so wonderfully illustrated it with these stories. Um, we're hoping that the big thing right now is, and, and it is a, it is a challenge, everyone, is this issue of, um, seeing the, uh, coming out of the pandemic as an opportunity to rethink, reconceptualize, reconfigure, uh, and renew what's really most important. Uh, what really makes things work? What really balances all the multiple goals you have that you want to support? How do you really think through the relationships to all your stakeholders? Uh, these are all the things that you need to engage in. And the comment you made earlier is true. It's, it's, it takes energy. It takes resources at a time when we're all psychologically worn out. Uh, it's not about, yes, it's about some financial resources too, but right now probably what dominates more the, um, uh, is sort of the change fatigue or the just fatigue of cope, the coping. Yeah. Fatigue. Yeah. And, and, yeah, that's death. right. Yeah, energy and resources, but also just, and there's something about opening up, you know, what the information you allow in, right? It's like a lot of these weak signals exist, right? And this, this information exists. So it's like allowing yourself to open to the, to the, to the breadth of information that's available, including the weak signals, um, based on this belief that, as you said, you know, viability in the long run requires you to do that. It requires yeah. this extensibility. And so, my pitch to organizations, uh, did it recently for some European groups and I'll do it again on, uh, next Wednesday is, um, that this is your window of opportunity. The window won't stay open, uh, for very long. Uh, I, I mean, long relative to the societal scales of the, the pandemic scale, which is again, still ongoing, even when we are easing it in uh, Europe and, uh, US and, uh, and the UK. I guess we have to say that separately now. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, Nigel Farage won't be happy if you uh, <laughs> conflate uh, the two. <laughs> um, the, um, but the, there is a, um, and, and all our researchers, there's a window in which this opportunity to reconceptualize, reconfigure, re-energize uh, stays open uh, and is available to you. Um, second is um, uh, you have to reconfigure in a way that better balances these two kinds of things. You know, how do I, how do I demonstrate this poise to adapt graceful extensibility at the edges? How do I uh, also be productive and efficient, uh, relative to the regular goals and kinds of short-term pressures of those kinds of stakeholders? And, and, and find that a, a new way to a new operating point in the balance of those two. You have to have both. And, uh, uh, they, most of the leaders of big organizations are feeling a uh, sigh of relief as they see things starting to uh, ease in the sense that we got through it. And as, and as they get that sense, they also seem to say, uh, given the conversations I've had, hey, you know, we kind of did okay getting through this. Maybe we're a better, maybe this was, you know, we did, oh, yeah, maybe we're pretty good. Uh, and I would go, Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't jump to that conclusion. Cause what you're, if you really dig, you're probably going to find there was a lot more ad hoc on the fly 
uh, uh, things going on. And also that you had some uh, unknown sources for graceful extensibility you didn't realize were there. You hadn't invested in. You didn't build them up, but it turned out they were there. And it's very easy for you to miss them now um, going forward. But um, the um, we, we really are trying to push this rebalancing where you can't see safety management as a encrustion uh, on the side of your organization. Uh, you can't see it as a separate bureaucracy. You can't see it as just a uh, bookkeeper that keeps all the statistics and, and the statistics are supposed to come out good that we are safe because not things, bad things don't happen very often or we're good because we followed up bad things when they do happen. And we have, uh, and we have little booklets with our results wrapped up in a pretty ribbon all in a cabinet and you can pull it out and look at it whenever you want. See, we, we looked at it. We fixed it. We're done. Uh, and you're like, no, you can't think of it that way anymore. You have to think of it as a partnership. You have to think of it as integration. You know, go, let's go back to that NASA spacewalk example. On the first spacewalk with the water intrusion in the helmet, did they call up safety? Did they talk to safety? Did they get any help from safety? Did they, did they make sure they didn't talk to safety? Right. Uh, there was, there was no help and there was no interest in help because they don't help. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is a, an old story about safety. They're monitoring the statistics on the operation, the events, the incidents that happen, and they come back to the line management and say, stop. You've had some serious incidents. Stop. Line management looks at them and goes, okay. So first off, safety throws cold water on operation. Throws the cold water, line management turns around and says, okay, what are you going to do to help? And safety management goes, I, I got no ammunition. My gun is empty. There's nothing I can do to help you. But you can't go because you've got to fix this problem. There's been these incidents and we've got to change practices and procedures. And line management says, well, you're, you're no help. You know, what, so what's line management job? Not to get safety activated because all they're going to do is throw cold water and have an empty gun, right? Nothing's going to happen that's constructive. So NASA, after Columbia, back to our spacewalk example, they started up a new organization uh, uh, called their Safety Center, and it was energized in an interesting way. Because this is important because you notice the constraint on this. So what they did was they set up a, a reservoir, a reserve of technical expertise. Who are our leading experts in different areas? And they got their line management to commit time of those people as needed when unexpected things happen. So they could pull out of their normal job and devote a, a portion of their time and the money that represented to these problems and issues that arose and take a bigger point of view, a more organizational-centered point of view, not just a component or subsystem point of view. And uh, uh, it survived since it was set up in the aftermath of the 2003 accident. Um, and it was what took the spacewalk incidents and said, this is a bigger issue. It has ramifications for uh, much more widespread across NASA and, and, the space, and the space station program and spacewalks, all of this stuff. And so they were able to pull together um, some technical experts within inside NASA, and they had some resources available to them to bring in outside people. Some colleagues of mine came in to help them because they recognized this was a resilience engineering, uh, you know, kind of graceful extensibility kind of issue. How it, how it happens, how it gets in the wrong place, uh, how do you build it up? 
um, and started to explore it from that point of view and bring lessons that were much wider uh, uh, across the organization from this incident rather than wrap it up, you know, have a component of subsystem improvement, put it to bed, reach closure, forget it ever happened. And so this has gone on for uh, uh, quite a while afterwards. And to some degree, we keep talking about it within and outside NASA because we're, we're showing this incident has value. As one colleague of mine says, most of the time, these incidents, you, you can't control these incidents, but you can control your return on investment, your return on information from these incidents, your return of learning from these incidents. Return of learning, I love that term, yeah. 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 And, and what happens is they, um, they throw that all away uh, by reaching this narrow, quick conclusion, that situational reaction like Noah's wife, and say, we're done. As opposed to saying there's much broader implications, and each of which lead to a variety of kinds of improvements in a variety of places. So it's much more uplifting across the organization. Um, so they've been uh, very successful. They've been sustained despite budget pressure within the organization, which is great. So it's really showing. Um, sometimes they uh, agree with line management. Line management sees them as an ally relative to upper management. Uh, sometimes they disagree with line management. Sometimes they bring in novel things that nobody really thought about as ways to deal with it that are respecting some of the limited resources, but really dealing with the technical challenges that improve. In part because NASA has a culture that we're all in this together. We are a really good organiz technical organization that really recognizes and solves problems. And that identity, that cultural identity as an organization leads them to not get too caught up in some of the other kinds of debates and conflicts and fragmentation and siloing. We're in this. We're NASA. We do things successfully. We do hard things well. And that requires us to look hard at our weaknesses and our flaws. Because if we can't fix our weaknesses, something bad's going to happen with our um, uh, space exploration or manned space programs. And so we have to be willing to expose our weaknesses, look hard at the information in order to be highly adaptive. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a certain level of humility, vulnerability that's required in the culture of trust, right? Trust that and, you know, we and, can and, expose and, and ourselves. And upper management is really hard to do this because upper management has to recognize despite all their efforts to make things organized and coherent and work together and work seamlessly, it's a mess. It's just a mess. It's going to be a mess. Yeah, yeah. Stop thinking you can make it perfect. No, it's going to be a mess. And you can't, you know, I mean, that's why I love the, the Fastly outage last week, which actually I think was a, actually, uh, and I think we'll see more information that this was actually a, a, a rapid, effective response uh, to a problem. But what it highlights is the surprise and shock there that most of the media is not picking up, like your guardian did not pick, understand this properly. Um, the, um, uh, it highlights the interconnections around the world that you don't think are there because, you know, a service that supports a service that supports the service that we actually touch as stakeholders, as consumers, uh, in various organizations has an, has a problem, which actually came from another service, someone else that utilized their service, which propagated in ways that affected so much, uh, I mean, Amazon cloud services were affected. Well, they have a, they have a CDN, um, the, they have a, a competitive fast service. 
but they use Fastly because it's actually technically better in some ways. Uh, parts of Amazon cloud services. So you, you see these, these strange and complex forms of interdependency and, and these circular interdependencies. It's something way up depends on, on itself way down here in order to do this. And, and so it's a, it's a different game. It actually highlights this stuff is more like biology than physics. Uh, yeah. it's a, I, biology has, you know, ultimately, you know, it gets a little messy and all you got to do is talk to your, your basic, um, surgeon when they go inside the body and go, yep, it's a little messy in there. Yeah. <laughs> Especially after it's been stressed and injured and repaired a few times, it gets, it gets messier in there. Uh, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, yeah. one of the rules, that's one of the rules is in the biological world, the system, the system as it works today, right? If you want to understand it, it's really the rolled up experience of the stressors over its lifespan, over its life cycle. Um, and, you know, you adapt to the experience of stressors. And you have to have the capability to continue to adapt and the expectation that there will be different sources of stress. There will be sudden increases in, in stress. There will be high periods of stress. And you have to have the mechanisms in advance of those periods of stress to cope with, utilize, uh, and move on from those periods. It's part of what it means to be in this biological adaptive universe. Yeah, yeah. Yes, brilliantly put. Well, David, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I've really, I've really enjoyed this. Um, and you've said you introduced me to um, several new concepts here, which... Um, yeah, you know, I, I could imagine myself using the fluency law, the uh, you know the component substitution fallacy. Right, this is a kind of a new language and a new vocabulary that I can imagine uh, you know helping me when I sort of try and articulate problems we have with complex systems. It's, well, we, yeah. we try to give people these kind of high level patterns so that they can see how they operate in other situations uh, and illustrate. Mm -hmm. Though uh, yeah. one colleague uh, constantly says we should we should just be writing short stories. We shouldn't write academic papers and scientific papers and things. Uh, we've talked. We should just write short stories, write up all these cases, right? And, uh, and just go again about, oh, but in the context of these higher level patterns, uh, and just write up the stories, whether it's a spacewalk story or a aviation story or a, uh, emergency room story, uh, that, uh, we should just become, uh, uh, you know, fit, non-fiction fiction writers or something you know to really show people how this stuff works by laying spinning out the tales yeah absolutely i mean that's how we mostly how you know we we communicate ideas amongst each other isn't it is through stories so. that's right that's yeah right. um good all right well hopefully there's a few stories in here for people to uh to enjoy uh and so we'll put some links to the books i suppose for people who really want to go much deeper in into this field is there is there anywhere else you'd point people uh well we've got some videos that are you know some are short um you know from five minutes to 18 minutes so we've got a couple that are longer um you know kinds of plenary keynote talks that try to explain aspects of this for people um we have a couple new ones coming up um, which should be interesting. Um, I'll review some of the biological system findings about how they have to, uh, how despite its the paradoxical nature, they're designed now to preserve capacity to adapt in the future, 
just and and even though that eats energy, that takes them away from being more optimal in the short run. Um, and so highlight some of those uh, those findings and how they connect to the human sphere. Um, so we're we're trying to have those, and then there's things you can read uh, about this stuff so of varying degrees of headache inducing uh, uh, papers. Uh, some are more general. Like this, you know, for management, we have the paper called the strategic agility gap, which is, which is you're great. You're just slower. You're slower than you think, especially if a big thing happens, a shock happens. And that means you'll be stale. And the way the world is changing, you need to speed up. And you're designed to go slow and steady, not be able to change tempo and uh, respond quickly. Uh, and that's why I say to organizations, don't get overconfident because you survived the pandemic and uh, in t- relatively intact um, because uh, you need to think, you know, you struggle to keep pace with the challenges the pandemic brought up. Uh, and that's great that you got through it, but you need to reconfigure in ways that can be faster. Uh, uh, keep pace, recognize things earlier, keep pace invest and build the capacity to adapt more as part of the DNA of your organization. Good. All right. Well, uh, thanks once again. We'll put those videos and those papers, um, um, follow up with you afterwards and get the links for that. And yeah. Just to say thank you. Thank you for sharing your time. Well, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate you uh, uh, putting this together and getting the production out there. I look forward Brilliant. to seeing the reactions you have. Yeah, no, yeah, and uh, and me. All right, thanks, David. All right, take Thank care. Bye bye. Take care. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com. <laughs>